And if you'll take your Bibles, please, this morning to the book of Hebrews. And in verse number 32, we read from verses 32 to 40, which is the uh, Apostles' conclusion of that great faith chapter. But this whole uh, section here, this faith chapter here, is just part of a whole argument that the Apostle was bringing that, that doesn't even end until the 13th chapter. And as I pointed out in the past, and I will remind you, that the book of Hebrews was written because Hebrew Christians, having been persecuted for some time, were beginning to falter in the pressure of the persecution to give in. They probably were rationalizing the thing a bit and thinking to themselves, the God of Abraham is the God of Jesus. And we're the sons of Abraham. So that the God of Abraham is our God too. If we just let Jesus go a little bit and focus on Abraham and Moses and the Old Covenant and just fit in again with, uh, with our brothers of like faith, of then like faith, I think we'd be okay. The pressure, the persecution would be off us and uh, we could live our lives out because it's the same God, right? Isn't it? Paul, this is Paul's argument. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. No. You don't understand. The old covenant is over. I'm going to talk about that here in a minute anyway. And you talk about Abraham. here, And so this is really what this faith chapter is all about. Showing the old covenant saints. And it closes with verses 39 and 40. I'm going to read those again. And all these, referring to the ones that were listed there, in, uh, in that faith chapter, the old covenant saints, through, though, excuse me, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, what does Paul mean here? I want you to take note of of verses 14 and 16. I uh, used to think that what was promised here was the was uh, the millennial kingdom. You know, back in the, the day when I was in my dispensationalism and uh, that the millennial kingdom was off to, to be when God would then reestablish himself with the people of Israel. But notice verses 14 and 16. They were seeking a homeland. He's talking about these people of faith in the Old Covenant here who were seeking a homeland. What? And notice here, they desire a better country. 
that is a heavenly one. <laughs> Not an earthly one, a heavenly one. In fact, they possessed the Canaan land. But they really, that's not what they wanted. That's not what Abraham wanted. I, you know, God said, I'm going to give you this land. But we read there that Abraham desired a city whose foundation, uh, that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. He wanted a heavenly city, which is described there in this 12th chapter. And Why? Notice what he says here. Listen, listen carefully. Since God, I'm back in verse 39 and 40. Since God had promised something better for us. I, I was reading that and I said, wait a minute. He's talking about them and now he says, since God has promised something or provided something better for, not promised, provided, not promised, provided something better for us. What, what has been provided for us that was better than they had was promised to them but not, but, but not provided. See, that's the point. Promised, provided. That's Jesus in the New Covenant. That has been provided for us. No, then notice the next. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, these Old Testament saints endured and were commended for their faith, but they never inherited what was promised. It was not provided for them, which was this better country, this heavenly one, without us. In other words, they set the, they set the pace looking forward to the provision that God would make for them and us together so that together we would inherit the promise. This better country, this heavenly one. So the realization was put on hold because what was needed for them to be made perfect in order to inherit this promise, and I'm, I'll deal with that in a second here, needed to be provided by Jesus. Jesus is the key. He's not come yet. And everything in that old covenant time looked forward to and anticipated the coming of Jesus Christ who would end all the old covenant issues to provide the new one, to provide a new and better one. this better country that they were promised. So they will together with us receive the promise when Jesus returns. We haven't got it yet either. You see that? They live by faith. 
never receiving the promise, but were commended because they consistently and persistently lived by faith. Think about Abraham. God promised him seeds as many as the stars of heaven, if you could count them, the sands of the seashore, if you could count them. And when, he, when God promised him this, when he was 80 years of age, think about it, 80, and he still doesn't have any children. Sarah was barren. He said, Abraham, look up there in the sky. Can you count those stars? No. That's how many children you're going to have. Lord, I'm 80. 20 years later, when he's 100, the Lord appears to him to talk about the covenant again. And the Lord said, uh, I mean, Abraham said to the Lord, I hate to break, this, break the news to you, but I don't have any kids. But this, I do have one fellow here who is the chief steward of my house, my household, Eliezer, and according to the law, when I pass on, it all goes to him because I don't have any heirs. <laughs> and you see those steps that going through there. I mean, here he is. He's old. God said, now you're going to have a son. And man, that, that, that story in itself is just it's phenomenal. And Isaac shall your seed be called. And Paul takes that up there in Galatians. Isaac, that seed, it's singular, not many, plural, but one, even Jesus. Is the true seed. Did it, did, does Abraham have an answer to the promise that his, that his seed would be as the stars of heaven without number? It's not, it's not the people of Israel that's, that were in view there either. We read in the Revelation that there will be a multitude that no man can number out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and people. That's the promise to Abraham through Jesus Christ. And as Paul is very clear in the book of Galatians, it is not, it's not the physical seed that counts here. It's the, it's the children of faith. So these Old Testament saints live by faith that pr the promises made by God would eventually be theirs even though they never obtained them in their lifetime. That's a real rebuke to these wavering saints to whom he's writing. Never, they persisted in their walk of faith. They believed that God had promised something and he was going to be good on his promise. He is a God who cannot lie. And God did, even though he commended them for their promise, I mean for their faithfulness, did, never did provide for them the promise that he made to them. Then, and why? See, this is, the pro this is really what the whole issue of Hebrews is about. So the main theme of the book of Hebrews 
is the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. They wanted to go back to the old covenant practices, to the temple, to the priesthood, to the sacrifices. But God said, no, those are going, they're, they're going away. Read the eighth chapter there of Hebrews, and that's, he, he makes it very clear in there. See, Jesus Christ is coming, and Jesus coming will change everything. So one of the things here that the, the old required was an earthly and tangible holy place. Because that's part, that's part of the promise. When, when uh, Abraham said he was looking for a city who's, that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God, part of that was, was the fact that there would be in that a temple. A temple is where God dwells. Abraham wanted a place where God dwelt. Remember when he came into the land, what, what was one of the things he did when, he, when God told him, walk through the length and the breadth of it. All of this I'm going to give you. What did he do? Every place where the pagans had worshipped their gods, he erected an altar for the true and the living God. Why? He anticipated the presence of God. So God gave to the people of Israel a tent, a tabernacle, where his presence would dwell among them. Later, Solomon built it as a permanent building there in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. But all it was was a picture. It was a it was an antitype. I mean, a type of the true antitype, which was the heavenly one. But what, what was interesting here is in this holy place, the ninth chapter there talks about this. It was but a copy of the heavenly one. There, according to verses 24 and 25 of chapter 9, I'm not going to go there, but the earthly tent with its holy of holies was merely symbolic of the coming true way into the Holy of Holies. Want to go back to the old one? I want to remind you, there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. You couldn't even go into the holy place. That was reserved for the priests only. Man, that curtain permitted no one. Nobody could go behind the curtain except the high priest, and only once a, once a year on the Day of Atonement. That veil covered the entry, forbade access to everybody. But what happened when Jesus died? When he cried out, it is finished? There was an earthquake, and the veil was rent from top to bottom. And what did that symbolize? That God had now provided access for his own to enter boldly the throne of grace. But there was one qualification for these new covenant believers. They had to be made perfect. Notice what it says here 
in uh, the, that last, the last word there, verse 40, that they should not be made perfect. They're going to be made perfect, but then they were not made perfect, and they couldn't be made perfect until this coming of Christ in a new covenant. But we're not made perfect either, but we are in a real sense. Not like the old covenant saints. We have been made perfect because we're robed of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are able to come boldly unto the throne of grace. See, those, all those made perfect are given full and free access to the Father. And we read this in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Let's listen to this. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the heavenly tabernacle, by the blood of Jesus, there's the key. By a new and living way. It's new, see? It's a, and it is a vital way. It is a living way. That he opened, he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of what? Faith. Now, let me, let me share another thing with you. This, by the way, this is the introduction. <laughs> John chapter 19, verse 30, and it's the only one that records Jesus' final words on the cross. And there we read, he literally shouted out. This is, this is supposed to be a dying man who's been hanging there for hours on this cross. And, and heck, and because of his hanging on the cross, he can barely breathe anymore. When he's ready to pass, he's ready to give up. He didn't, he didn't die, he gave up his life. But just before he gave up his life, he cried out, in, the, in the, our English version, it's three words. It is finished. The Greek word is one. I mean, it's, in the Greek, it's one word. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. The root of this word, tetelestai, teleo, forms the word that's translated here, made perfect. Teleu. The word teleu means to finish, complete, and perfect. What makes us perfect? The finished work of Christ. These could not be made perfect until Jesus cried out from the cross, Tetelestai, paid in full, finished, completed, done, over, perfect. It's used in Hebrews nine times and develops the accomplishment 
of Jesus' suffering. Suffering which perfects the spiritual salvation of his elect. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, not repeated offerings in the old covenant tabernacle, but, a, but by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Yeah. So I'm not perfect yet. But I am. I am perfect. In a very real sense, I am perfect. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when he cried out from the cross, Tetelestai! Boom! It was done. Can I lose my salvation? Absolutely not. Because Jesus perfected me before the throne of grace. Wow. So chapter 10 closes then with an appeal to these wavering Jewish saints. Weary of suffering persecution. Hey guys, remember back to the former days when you were first enlightened and joyfully endured a hard struggle? It hasn't changed. Your outward circumstances haven't changed. You, the problem is you've gotten weary in well-doing. They endured because they knew, and he reminds them, here's how you endured then. You knew, this is uh, verse 34, you knew that you had a better possession. These Old Testament saints in chapter 11, they walked by faith and endured everything that came upon them because they knew that one day God promised them a better possession. You had the same thing. So then he admonishes them. This possession would abide forever. There according to verse 34. So he admonishes them. There in verses 25 and 36. Do not throw away your confidence of faith. Which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There's that theme again. At the end of the gospel age, Jesus Christ is going to return. And he is going to complete the process of their sanctification. They are already perfected, but they still need to be sanctified. That's, that's, the, thing. that's the thing. I'm still in the process of sanctification. And when Jesus Christ returns, that's going to be done because in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed and be made like him. And the sanctification process will also be completed. So in the, pro in the meantime, what does he tell us? He's citing here from Habakkuk chapters, uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 3 and 4. My righteous ones shall live by faith. My righteous ones shall live by faith. 
in the process. We've got to live by faith. And that means, means we're going to have to do some enduring. He also warned them that should they fall away, and it is possible that professing, see, because we can't, we can't know. I can I look at you, and, I, and I've known you, and I love you, and we have served, each, served the same Lord together for, for these years, and I've watched your lives. But I can't know your heart. But he does. And sadly, as I have witnessed here even in recent times, people who have claimed to follow the Lord, have served the Lord, even been missionaries, fall away. Why? Because it was just a profession. If Jesus did the work, they can't fall away. So he's warning them, here's the problem. If you continue to do what you're doing, you're going to fall away. And if you fall away, the Lord says, My, I, I have no pleasure in them. And it being a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the last words of the 10th chapter before he goes into the faith chapter. So I define faith then as full confidence in the word of God. These people didn't have much of the word of God. Even the saints here that Paul's writing to didn't have much of the word of God. They had more than Abraham did and Moses and others. But we have a complete word of God right here. And this word of the living God is what gives the assurance of hope because of a settled conviction of the reality of the invisible. And that's where he started out there this, in that 11th chapter. That, that the things that we can see that are tangible around us were made of things that do not appear. God just spoke them into existence. Just spoke them into existence. What, so, and what, and what spoke them into existence? <laughs> the word of God. God said, let there be, and there was. So then, he closes, I should say, he closes that last chapter, verse 39 here, with this, with confidence in them. He warns them, but he also shows real confidence in them. For he says, uh, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. How do you preserve your soul? You walk by faith. You live by faith. My righteous ones shall live by their faith. So the 11th chapter here is part of the larger discussion of the obsolescence of the Old Covenant, which chapter 8 deals with. But uh, how God graciously worked real faith in, in the righteous remnant. These Old Testament saints who, although part of a very imperfect system, nevertheless believed in God, who died, and these all died, it says here, in faith, not having received the 
the things promised, but having seen them by the eye of faith, because of the revelation of God in his word, they greeted them from afar as a not yet reality, and having acknowledged that they were but strangers and exiles in the earth, citizens of the yet not yet kingdom reality, verse 13, and even though those who lived by faith did not receive what was promised, nevertheless they did receive a commendation for their faithfulness. And that's verse 3. So then beginning at verse 32 here, the apostle sums up the testimonies of those who lived by faith under that imperfect old covenant system. The apostle changed his method also in this section, no longer singling out individual heroes of the faith and dwelling on them, but rather confirming two things. One, number one, even under that imperfect system, faith accomplished many glorious things. When it was informed, faith and directed by the will of God, and empowered by the Spirit to accomplish what God purposed. However, in the second section here, which is again a kind of rebuke to the wavering Hebrew believers, suffering and seeming defeat may also be in the will of God. When that is so, faith enables true believers to remain faithful even in their suffering. And these final examples then are especially relevant to Paul's purpose to encourage the suffering Hebrew recipients who were beginning to waver. Endure to the end. And I'm reminded again of of uh, Jesus' own words there in Matthew chapter 24. He who endures to the end shall be saved. It's not your enduring that saves you. It's the grace of God that enables your enduring, which proves that His grace saved you. So this truth is relevant to us as well. And so we're very likely, I think, to be on the verge of some suffering for the gospel. Jesus warned his followers, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. You're going to be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to be a witness. And why? Because on earth, distress of nations and perplexity will cause people to faint with fear and with foreboding of what is to coming upon the world. Just look at the news a little bit. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. This is God's plan. Shake the heavens. <laughs> Whoa. And because of that, he, Jesus said, you're going to be hated all by all for my name's sake. We were once tolerated, but we will now be hated. Oh, you Christians, eh. But now, ah! <laughs> You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But here's the promise. Not a hair of your heads. Some, some heads need 
Um, they they got fewer hairs, and it becomes more precious. <laughs> Not a hair of your head will perish. But notice, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. So let me let me quickly go through the rest of this. First of all, we see a faith that conquers. The apostle begins by stating the time, that is, the space in his letter fails him, to tell of all the faithful recorded in the Word of God. He's, he, he only dealt with 12 examples of faith in the first uh, verses there, which I believe is, is significant. I, I, numbers intrigue me, and I don't think this is coincidental. That 12 here is the number of governmental completion due to the accomplishment of these and the involvement of these individuals who served faithfully in establishing the nation of Israel in the promised land under Joshua and those who followed him. Then, in summary, he cites a few more in verse 32 in a more general way, seven to be exact, which which turns our attention back to spiritual matters and seven being the number of spiritual completion. God fulfilled all of his promises to the Old Testament saints regarding the land and their possession of it on beyond the Jordan. But then, and these names that, that are listed here covers two periods after the land was accomplished, after this taking of the land was accomplished. They, the children of Israel didn't do a very good job. God said, you go in, take possession, I'll drive them out. But they didn't. They let, uh, they let the enemy remain. And that was a, con a constant problem for them. And so, uh, what the names that, uh, that are listed here in this, sec in this section here are those names that involved the period of the judges and the period of the monarchy, which was after they, took, they went into and took possession of the land. And by the way, I remind you that, that the Word of God even speaks of that period of the judges as being the dark ages of Israel's history. And we read in the last verse of the judges, in those days there was no king in Israel because they refused to recognize God as their king. That was Samuel's problem. But, but, but God, they got a king. You! No, I'm going to let them have the desire of their heart, but I'm going to send leanness into their own souls here. Because why? It says everyone did that was right in his own eyes. Boy, sounds like today, particularly in the churches. And this brought in the monarchy as the people demanded a king. We want a king like the other nations. And even though God chose the man, he chose it on the basis of their desires. And he gave them their own heart's desire. But as we read in Psalm 106, verse 15, he sent leanness to their souls. So after God's, after then God re rejected Saul, their first king, 
Samuel then appointed or anointed David as God's choice, which was the type of Jesus Christ. See, you have the two. Samuel did both. Samuel was a prophet. He was a judge and a prophet. And the last judge of Israel. And then he anointed David, the man after God's own heart, a type of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, following that, there is a list of names from these two periods. Ten glorious accomplishments by ordinary people enabled by, by faith are cited here. Who's, who those people are is not specifically mentioned. But if one knows the Old Testament scriptures, he can identify it. He can identify them. And so this is what we read here. These saints, through faith, conquered kingdoms. That would be Joshua through David. Enforced justice. That is literally there, the Hebrew says, righteousness. This would be the judges, particularly Samuel. Obtained promises. That would be Hannah, who believed God, and God gave her a son, Samuel. Then the list changes and becomes passive. These people, it was an active list. Now, now uh, this list continues, it's passive. Stopped the mouths of lions. Who stopped the mouths of lions? Well, it wasn't Daniel. The, the Bible tells us that because of his faithfulness to God, he was thrown into the den of lions against Darius's wishes, but nevertheless, uh, he had to do it because of the law of the Medes and the Persians. But then he didn't sleep any at all that night and anxiously went to the, to the lion's den the next morning. Daniel, you, you still there? Did God take care of you last night? And Daniel responds to him, Yes, the Lord sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. Ah. Then it says, quench the power of fire. Who would that be? Well, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who accompanied by a fourth man who was like a son of God, were thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, but when they came out, not even the smell of smoke on their clothes. And nothing burned, not a, not a scent, not a hair of their heads was, was singed. Huh? Except the cords that bound their, their arms or their hands behind their backs. And then we read, they escaped the edge of the sword. Here again, many examples of those who survived the attack of their enemies, such as David fleeing from Saul. Then were made strong out of weakness. That's Gideon and Samson. Samson was a weak man. We said he was the strongest man on earth. No, he was a weak man, very weak man. His strength was from the Lord. And then we read they became mighty in war. Again, David, who was the subject of the lyrics of a song. Saul has slain his thousands. David has tens of thousands. They put foreign armies to flight. And again, we could 
cite many examples like Gideon and his 300. 300 men put the, put the thousands of Midian to flight. Wow. Women received their dead back by resurrection. This would include the widow of Zarephath, whose son Elijah raised from the dead, there in 1 Kings chapter 17, and the Shunammite, whose son Elisha raised from the dead. That, By the way, that's the only two stories of people being raised from the dead in the Old Testament, from Elijah and Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 4. And this list demonstrates that there is nothing too difficult for faith. That is God-wrought faith. Since faith is the gift of God. And this is the thing we need to... It's not your faith. It's the faith that God grants to you. As a gift. And God is able to do great things through His faithful when faith is applied according to the will and purpose of God. That brings me then to conclude this. And this is the faith that endures. Please hang on just a bit longer. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. What is that? Do we, that, we don't find that in the Bible, but uh, it is recorded in the pseudepigraphal book that is an extra-biblical reference called Mart The Martyrdom of Isaiah that describes Isaiah, how he died under Manasseh, who was an evil king, did evil in the sight of the Lord, who seized him and had him sawn in two with a wooden saw. Ancient, there are other ancient reports that Isaiah fled from Manasseh, hid in a hollow tree, but was discovered, and they kept him in the tree and then sawed the tree in two. However he died, he died a martyr's death. And it says, and they were killed with the sword. While some escaped the edges of the sword, others were slain by the sword. And then it describes how they went about in their poverty in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains because they couldn't come to the cities anymore, in dens and caves of the earth. They couldn't live in their homes anymore. See, suffering is the choice of a sovereign God for a class of saints. They're called martyrs. Martyr means witness. They're witnesses. Jesus said, they're going to, you'll be my witnesses to demonstrate to this vile world that something vastly more glorious awaits those of whom it is said the world was not worthy. John wrote, one of the elders addressed me. Who are these clothed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of great tribulation. Revelation 7, 13 and 14. 
Those who suffered were enabled to endure and were victorious in their suffering because they believed that they would experience a better life in the resurrection. That's the key. This was the hope of these old covenant saints as expressed by David there in Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face. Oh, I, I could almost preach a sermon on that. I won't do it now. I, 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 I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. That's my hope. I'm going to see him. See his face in righteousness when I am awake, when I am re resurrected. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I'm going to be made like Jesus. The apocryphal history, 2 Maccabees, records the experience of those faithful ones who suffered under Antiochus Epiphanius the Greek king of Syria. Hear their testimony of hope. When one of the saints took his last breath, he uttered, You, like a fury, take us out of this present life, but the king of the world shall raise us up unto everlasting life. Chapter 7, verse 9. Another, when he was ready to die, said, It is good being put to death by men, to look for hope from God who raised, to be raised up by him. However, as for you, Antiochus, you shall have no resurrection of life. He's going to be raised, but to judgment. All these, those who, whose faith enabled their, their glorious accomplishments were commended through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Yes, the period of the judges and the period of the monarchy both pointed to the eternal kingdom of, of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That kingdom that cannot fail because through Christ the people are perfected to worship only the Lord God, to obey fully the Lord Jesus and to possess completely their eternal inheritance. So that... that that's why it's concluded. God has provided something better for us, the new covenant, that apart from us, they, the old covenant saints, should not be, or actually could not be, made perfect since the new covenant had yet to be implemented. In other words, the new covenant had to be instituted before the old covenant faithful could be made perfect and thus not they they and, and until until that was the possibility they could not receive what was promised now it's your turn chapter 12 opens with an with the admonition based on the truths of chapter 11 since we notice since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's the old covenant faithful. And four things he says to us. Let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. Despised the shame. And is, set down, and is seated. On the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. 
And understand that it is for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as with sons. This is the sanctification process. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline for the purpose of sanctification? Number two. So run with endurance and consider Him. Then number two. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet by getting into the Word of God. And in this, strive for peace with everyone and pursue holiness. That's the sanctification process with which no one will see the Lord. Number three, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Well, I see that in my own heart. It's a, a tendency to bitterness. Make sure you don't that you obtain the grace of God. It is only the grace of God that will prevent the root of bitterness. And if that comes in, it'll cause trouble, and many will be become defiled. Lastly. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. But rather let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He's going to shake the heavens one of these. He's already doing that. He's shaking things right now. People are... People are nervous and scared. They don't know what to do. They're, they're, they're frantic. But we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and godly fear. I, don't, I disagree with the translation of the word phobos with awe. It's not awe. It's fear. The fear of God. Our God is a consuming fire. Father, thank you for the word, word of God. I pray your blessing upon it in our lives. Lord, be, we are instructed by it. Now your spirit must apply it. And I pray that he would do so in a way that would cause us to be strong in the faith and to give glory to God. To walk by faith and not by sight. To live by faith. Because your righteous ones are to live by faith. For faith, Lord, is what enables us to see what is promised. That we will receive when we are raised from the dead. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.